folks, good morning. I, uh, when Aaron called me yesterday and asked if um, I would be willing to do this, I kind of chuckled. Uh, I didn't say this to him, but I know he's listening today, but he'll get a chuckle out of this. First thing that came to my mind is y'all are going to get out here earlier than if he was speaking. So I, I guess that is a good thing for you, but um, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24. This is, this is something that has been in the back of my mind for eight years. This passage that we are going to go through uh, has come to mean a lot to me, and, and you'll hear why uh, in just a few minutes. But it's, it's a very personal passage, but I think it's something that is applicable to us today. In October... It'll be eight years since my mom lost her battle with cancer. Even though she lost that battle with cancer, she won an eternity with her God. And I will be honest that uh, during that time, I struggled. Um, you know, the, the questions that we all ask whenever we have suffered losses, why her, why now, why did this have to happen this way? And the Lord knows exactly what he's doing, and he has everything planned for a reason. And at that time, I had a blog that I would, I would get books for free, and I would review them. And the book that showed up at my door was this one, The Searchers, by Joseph Leconte. Now, the amazing thing is this man is not a Bible scholar. He's not a theologian. He's a history professor. But he wrote this book on the passage that we are going to go through today because his mom lost her battle with cancer. I have gone through this book several times. He and I have had multiple conversations. In fact, I actually shipped this book to New York, the college where he is, and he signed it and sent it back. But Luke chapter 24, we are going to look beginning in verse 13 with the road to Emmaus. Verse 13 reads, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day. And what day was that? If we back up to the first few verses, it's the day that Christ resurrected from the grave. But behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened, so it was while they conversed and reasoned. I'm going to stop right there. Every single one of these things that we're going to talk about are alliterated. So first part, let's talk about the setting. You know, this town is seven miles away from the city of Jerusalem, so the average person can run a mile between nine and ten minutes, and the average person can walk a mile between 20 and 25 minutes. Um, I'm sure with these two individuals deliberating on what had happened in the city, it may have been a slower walk. But just for mathematical purposes, Wendy, you're going to be proud. I checked my math multiple times. For them to be able to cover seven miles at 30 miles or 30 minutes per mile, that translates to roughly three and a half hours. So somewhere this journey took them about three hours. But they were, they were reasoning, they were discussing, they were disputing back and forth, trying to make sense of everything that had happened. But there's something important here that we often overlook when we find ourselves on the road after loss. Notice they're not going this alone. They have a 
fellow believer that is with them trying to help them make sense of that. My friends, when we are having difficulty, when we are struggling, it is dangerous when we get alone. You know, we, one of the phrases that I heard when we lived at a, in Raleigh and attended a church there is, you know, do you have that 2 a.m. friend that you can pick up the phone and call and know they'll be with you that quick? If you do have that friend, that is a blessing. But the bigger question that I would turn to you this morning is, are you that 2 a.m. friend? Because we're all going to struggle. So that's the setting. Let's, let's look at verses 15 and 16 and look at the stranger here. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. We have the blessing of historical hindsight to be able to know that this was the risen Lord that was walking with these two men. But they didn't know this guy. They knew nothing about him. But is it not just like Jesus that when we are going through a tough time that he draws near to us? Sometimes we don't know he's there, but he's there. You know, it reminds me of that poem from years ago, uh, Footsteps, where the, the individual's like, Lord, I needed you, but there's only one set of footprints in the stand. And Jesus responds back, that's right, because it was at that moment that I carried you. But I love this phrase. And it, I, I love to read, I love to study, and when I find conflict among biblical scholars, I smile. Because we always try to know what really was said, but we never will. But th their eyes being restrained, there are some commentators on one side that say this was a supernatural limiting of them to be able to know who Jesus was. But there are those that are on the other side that are saying, no, there's probably something in their life that prevented them from being able to understand that this truly was Jesus. Who's right? I don't know. Could be both. But let's stop and think about in our own daily life, what are things that would prevent us from being able to see that Jesus is right with us? The easy one, because this passage is about it, is doubt. We're going to talk about doubt in a little bit. But secondly, it could be difficulty. When we go through tough times, instead of praising the Lord, what do we do? We gripe, we complain, we murmur, we question. Maybe it's disobedience. Could be defiance. It could be any of those reasons. But what you and I need to do every single day is search our hearts. And if we cannot feel the presence of God, the question becomes why? And we have to look internally first. So we see the setting, we see the stranger, but notice the sadness. Look at verse 17 here. So the stranger comes alongside them and says, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Verse 18, and one whose name was Cleopas answered, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which have happened there these days? And Jesus said, I love this. What things? We have the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing Son of God that has come alongside these men that are struggling with something, and notice how patient he is. He's with them. Loss, difficulty, it's part of life. 
but it's what you do with it that matters. You know, I, one of the things I do appreciate about what Joseph uh, in his book said, there was this one line that I have underlined multiple times. I've got an asterisk out beside it. It is circled, and it's this statement. These men were on a desperate quest for faith because they lived in a world gone mad with doubt. He wrote this of these men 2,000 years ago. Does that apply to us today? Our world is mad with doubt. Question everything. There's nothing certain. But yet we see very clearly that Jesus has come alongside them. And he's simply asking questions. When we have someone that we come alongside to try and support and help during a difficult time, we have to make sure that we listen and not lecture. We need to make sure that we emphasize rather than trying to educate. I mean, look at Job. Look at his friends. They came alongside him and said, you've sinned, confess, everything will be fine. And Joseph argued, I have done nothing wrong. We so often shift into a mode of having to fix someone, and we forget to be a friend to someone. That is exactly what Jesus is doing right here. So we see the setting, the stranger, and the sadness, but notice the struggle that Cleopas lays out very clearly in verse 20. He says, So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. Please take note of verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they could not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women who had said, but they did not see. Folks, notice Cleopas here. When he makes this comment, are you the only person in Jerusalem that has no idea what has happened? That is a stinging statement. It comes from someone that's in pain, and then he shifts into high gear where he doesn't just kind of give a simple explanation. He just throws everything out. It is a good thing that I'm not God. Because had I been Jesus at that moment, I would have taken my nail-scarred hand and I would have smacked him on the back of the head, like I do sometimes with this one over here, when he does some things that he should not, to get his attention. But why? Look at verse 21. Cleopas looks at Jesus. Again, he doesn't know this. We have that benefit. But he says, we were hoping that it was he, the Messiah, we were eagerly expecting that he would redeem Israel. That he would buy Israel back. That he would pay a price of ransom. He had already done that. Cleopas had missed it, but he had already done it. So let's walk through this. He, he identifies Jesus as a prophet. But he says he's not just a prophet in word, but his actions matched what he said. 
which is an immediate contrast of what we see with the chief priests. And notice the phrasing here in verse 20 where it talks about our rulers. He is owning that the leaders of the Jewish nation put Christ to death. So how could this great prophet who he healed the sick, he restored strength to the lame, he raised the dead, how could this prophet be dead? Well, then he blames the Jewish leaders, but he doesn't stop there. He continues. This is day three. We've had a report from some women that said they saw a vision of angels. Now, we know culturally that in a court of law, for the Jewish court, a woman would not be considered a reliable witness. So they were wrestling with that. But notice what happens. He continues moving through where he says that certain of us went to view the tomb and he was not there. They couldn't find the body. So for all of these things, they are struggling with the past, with the current present that they are experiencing. They're confused. These last few verses offered them hope, but they didn't take it. Then in verse 25, I absolutely love the statement that Jesus gives. It sounds harsh initially, but think about where we are. These individuals had leveled it out that they wanted Jesus to be the ransom. He had done it. There are individuals that are saying that he had risen from the grave and they went to find him. They couldn't find him. They didn't know what to believe, but Jesus in verse 25 offers up the scripture. He says, and then he said to them, O foolish ones. Now, Teens, this is not the foolish that we're talking about on Wednesday nights where they reject wisdom. The Greek term here literally means lacking in understanding. Not being able to take A squared plus B squared to get to C squared. Wendy, there's my second mathematical analogy. You ought to be proud. But there it is. They were, they were lacking in understanding and he was about to bring that to pass. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. If you're slow, what are you not? Fast. We've all got kids. Do kids move slowly in getting ready for school, or do they do it quickly? you just shook your head I know the answer to that it is slow it's like don't make me get out of bed these men these individuals were slow to get to the point of believing they referenced Christ as mighty in word and deed they referenced that people are saying he's no longer there but they were slow to make the connection but verse 26 ought not the Christ to have suffered these things this question that Jesus has posed to them is not aimed at, at them in any particular way. He is using a typical rabbinical teaching tool. So instead of giving them the answer, he's asking the question, getting them to start to think, to start to process all of this. Why? Look at verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, what did he do? He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
That word expounded, it means bring to the other side. The only way I know how to put this in our modern day vernacular, you know, I know Denny has, has traveled overseas on missions trips. I know Chris has been, I don't know who else. I went to Tanzania, obviously, this year. When I was in Tanzania, there was no way for me and my English to communicate with someone that did not speak English because they knew Swahili. And we couldn't work the other way. If they knew Swahili and they tried to talk to me, I didn't know what they were saying. I knew just a couple of words, Jumbo, you know, it's the small stuff. What we needed was an interpreter who could take what they said and bring it to the other side for understanding. That's what Jesus did. There are some instances in Scripture that I would absolutely be able to love to have the opportunity to build a time machine to go back. I would love to be the fourth person in this group because I want to know what did Jesus take them through in his Old Testament? Did he start in Exodus 12 and talk about the Passover? Did he get to Leviticus 17 where the spotless lamb and nothing was to be broken? Did he talk to them about Numbers 21 and the example of of Moses creating that serpent and putting it up and all they had to do was to look and live? Did he take them to Isaiah 50 where it was referenced that the anointed one would be mocked and abused? Did he carry them through Isaiah 53? I don't know. But I would love to know what he taught them. They struggled. But Jesus, instead of simply just addressing that struggle, he took them to the sole place where we find our refuge. It's God's word. It's scripture. So notice what happens after this. Verse 28, we see a stay. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Now, remember what I said earlier about the amount of time that it would take to walk a mile. That's important because we see here that it's getting closer to evening. So if you do some mathematical calculations, Jesus would have probably appeared to them sometime after 3 p.m. on the road. We don't know how long he walked with them. We don't know how far that was, but we know that we're getting close to evening and these, these strangers to Jesus are being hospitable by saying, hey, come stay with us. You know, it's night. Jesus says he's going to continue going further, but traveling roads at that time at night was not safe, especially doing that alone. So they were trying to look after this stranger. But when it says that they constrained him, it was a constant petition it's almost the image of a kid trying to wear you down to get what they want. I have a little one in my house right now that I took to hit some golf balls the other night. And he's like, Daddy, when are we, come, when are we coming back? It's like, well, do you have any money to pay? No. Okay, well, you need to help raise some money. And what has he done? He has not gone to his mother or come to me and said, hey, Daddy, Mommy, can, can we do some chores so I can get some extra money? No. He has pestered his older siblings to try and get money from them to be able to play golf. And it has become incessant. Ever since I took him every day, Daddy, can we count my money? Son, did you add any to it? Nope. 
So it's that constant petitioning. That's what they did to get Jesus to stay. But I want you to take note of what happens in verse 30. Jesus agrees to stay with them. They prepare a meal for him. And notice what he does. He sits at the table. He takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it and divides it for them. It would be as, as if Denny and Elaine invited my family over to their house. And when we walked in the door, we told Elaine to get out of the kitchen. We're going to take the food. We're going to serve it. You've got the wrong forks on the table. Um, Denny, you need to sit here. I know you normally sit there, but you're going to sit over here. The guest, I love this phrase that Tony Evans puts, the guest has now become the host. Why? Because he is the almighty all-powerful son of God who died on a cross, who rose again, who has just expounded the scriptures to him, and he is about to reveal himself to these individuals. There was something that he said that had resonated with these individuals, and they didn't object. I remember when we first got married, um, Love my grandma to death. But she came over with my grandpa one, one Saturday night. We had just finished cooking, had just sat down to eat. Doorbell rings. Open the door. My grandma walks in. Isn't, hi, Joel. Hi, Aaron. Beeline into the kitchen. And the immortal words of my grandma. Well, this place sure is a mess. Ladies. Did my wife sit down and enjoy the meal that had just been prepared? No. There was cooking that was taking place. My wife now decided she's going to start cleaning. Well, my grandma, every time that she came over, would make a beeline to the kitchen. Look, your bowls don't need to be in this cabinet. They need to be over there. And she would move them. And you would tell her to stop, and you would move them back. The next time she would come over, what would she do? Aaron? She would move them back. She had become the host, even though it was not her home. Jesus had done the same thing. He did it respectfully, but notice what happens in verse 31. This is where this story for me, in the difficult time that I had with my mom dying, opened up. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew. The relationship that they had, it was there. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? What was the difference? It was his prayer. Oh, I would love to have heard that prayer. You know, the, the rabbis during that day, if they had a student, would teach them a specific prayer that every one of those students would need to learn. And then while they were walking through town, if they were to pray that out verbally, out loud, people would go, oh, that one is associated with Denny. Oh, that one is associated with Mr. Allred. Oh, that one is associated with Shave. It was an identification. It was a ritual. 
Jesus offered a relationship. You can almost imagine what you would see in John chapter 17 where he is speaking of the intimacy with the Father and how he just honors him, how he approaches him with humility. My question to you is how do you pray? Far too often in in my own life, prayer is, Lord, thank you for the food. Bless it. Let us serve you. Amen. And that's it. That's not a relationship. But notice when he prayed, if I was writing a script, if, if this was going to be translated into you know, some kind of a dramatic production, you, know, you would have the two individuals seated across from each other, Jesus having broken the bread, the heads bowed. And when Jesus starts praying, you can almost see both of their heads popping up, locking eyes with each other, realizing this is Jesus and then turning to see him. Now, we don't know, did they actually get to see him or had he already vanished? If I was writing the script, they would be able to see Jesus. There would be that smile, and then he would disappear. But what a moment right here. But when it says that he vanished from their sight, understand this does not mean that Jesus abandoned them. Just like we have Christ with us now, he was with him. They just couldn't see him. But notice the exact next step. They go, did our hearts not burn while he taught the scriptures to us? Do we have a longing and a passion for God's word? Or do we dread it? You know, I I shared this when I, I, I talked about the trip to Tanzania. Uh, the last Sunday that we were there, I, I spoke at one of the churches. The service started at 7.30 in the morning, and we left at 11.47. Those people had a heart to hear God's word. We went from there to another service that had started at 11.30. We left there at 2 p.m. Here in America, man, pastor, you better put 20 minutes on it and be done. We've got to get to the food place. These men, unknown how long this journey took, was all about God's word. Then notice verse 33. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. At seven miles, three hours, at dark, at night, they didn't care about the safety issues. I do bet that the journey back to Jerusalem was faster than the journey from Jerusalem because they had motivation. Verse 34, so they found the 11 and said, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Do you think our world would be different If every Christian that claimed Christ, that attended a church service, that when every Christian that did, when they left, they told anyone and everyone that they could find what Jesus had done for them. Do you think this world would be different? Yes. Yes. Our world, quite frankly, is weary of beliefs that bring no lasting comfort. They're everywhere. 
And what does bring lasting comfort is right here. And we're reluctant to share. When, when I was going through this passage, you know, after my mom had passed away and, and was reading through this, this book by Joseph Lacanti, you know, most, most folks will stop the road to Emmaus where we have ended at verse 35. But notice the opening phrase of verse 36. Now, as they said these things, what things? They had just raced from Emmaus. They had come to Jerusalem. They assembled with the eleven. They had a conversation. Jesus did indeed appear to us. We believe that he's truly arisen. Notice what happens. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. Can you imagine these individuals? We walked with a stranger that we didn't know who he was, but boy, could he teach the scripture. He took over in our house, became our host. He broke bread for us and he prayed and we realized it was Jesus. We've raced back. And now he's here again. What a day these men had. Notice what Jesus did, though. Verse 37, or excuse me, and he says to them, peace to you, verse 37. Why? Because they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen the Spirit. We look at this and go, y'all, how could you be so foolish? I mean, come on. You just realize it's Jesus, and now you're shocked that he's just poof, popped into this room? We think too highly of ourselves. Because let's just be honest. If tonight we're meeting to go through the gospel project, some individual just mysteriously appeared in the room that all of us could see, had nail prints in his hands, and he claimed to be Jesus, would we really believe it's Jesus? Probably not. But yet here we have Jesus. Notice verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? I'm not going to go through the rest of the passage, but go to verse 44. So after he has shown them his hands and his feet and his side, because they are totally surprised, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Jesus is going, remember what I taught you. But then he goes one step further, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures twice. In this instance, what does Jesus do? He takes everyone. Right here. So teens. You're young. Man, my whole life is ahead of me. You're right. Difficult days will come. Loss will happen in your life. You're not going to win every time. But what you do on the road after loss matters. I remember when my mom called... Um, I can't remember if it was a Thursday or a Friday, but it was close to the end of the week. And she wanted me to, to come up uh, from Raleigh to visit with Dad. And I was like, Mom, I, I don't know, I'm kind of busy this weekend. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, my mom was weakening, and it's not how I wanted to remember my mom, so I stayed away. But 
her voice changed to where she said, son. My mom never called me son. <laughs> so that was one of those moments of, oh, okay, I need to listen. She said, son, I'm teaching your dad how to balance a checkbook. I need you here. I knew that my mom was not going to live much longer. And this passage came to mean a lot to me. Because there's hope beyond loss. It's hard, but there's hope beyond loss. So as we wrap this up, I want to leave you with four things. Number one, doubt is not a sign of disease. It's the direction to a deeper relationship. You look at what these these individuals in, in this journey along the road to Emmaus, they struggled with doubt. But that was not a sign that they didn't have faith. It pointed them to the need for a deeper relationship, and we see that's exactly what Christ did. He came alongside them. He asked them what things, and then he lived life with them along that road. Doubt's not a sign of disease. It's the direction to a deeper relationship. You know, we've we've heard the statement before that a faith that cannot be tested can't be trusted. There's truth to that. If I ask my son to come up here and to trust me to take a flying leap off the stage, would I catch him? Chances are he's going to go, probably not, Dad. I, I think you would use me as a bad sermon example. Let me hit the floor, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But in a moment of serious crisis, if I told him, son, jump, there would be no doubt, no hesitation. We often think that if we doubt, that means that we're not a good Christian. Folks, Peter walked on water at the behest of Jesus, and then he sank. We talked about this with the Gospel Project. Jesus reached down, grabbed him, and picked him up. The storm didn't end right then. Jesus walked Peter back into that boat for what was said there. Doubt can deepen the relationship. Number two, truth changes our minds, opens our eyes, and fills our hearts. Think about what Jesus did here in verses 30, or we see this in verses 30 through 32, where Cleopas and his his comrade talk about how when Jesus spoke, their hearts were alive. They were ignited. They were passionate. It wasn't because some grand book came across their desk. It was because Jesus presented the truth from the Old Testament. We are blessed to not only have the Old Testament that they had, but also the New Testament. The truth that is here can change our minds. It'll open our eyes and it will fill our hearts. You know, I... The teens, we're going through Proverbs, and you, know, you get to the Proverbs chapter 3. I can't remember the verse off the top of my head, but, but Solomon, in the midst of this grand exposition on wisdom, turns and goes, God, by wisdom, 
founded the earth. So stop and think about that. The earth was created, but God used something that pre-existed before the world. And what was it? Wisdom. We are so quick when we need an answer to look to the world, to athletes, entertainers, books, other people. But the wisdom that we need is with God and God alone. Jesus took them to Scripture to help them in their difficult times. So number one, doubt is not a sign of disease, but the direction to a deeper relationship. Number two, truth changes our minds, opens our eyes, and fills our hearts. Number three, prayer joins truth with everyday life. Prayer joins truth with everyday life. One of the things that I really appreciate about our pastor is this focus on praying the Bible, praying the Psalms. Because think about what we do. Danny this morning, in filling in for the pastor, read a passage from the Psalms, read the truth. And then what did he do? He prayed it back to the one who wrote it in ways that apply to our life. Prayer is joining the truth to everyday life. Far often, more than we should, prayer is give me, give me, give me. That's the wrong approach. Prayer is about a relationship. You know, the, the teens that are in here, I know this does not apply to you because you live in a completely different world where you text your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Back in the old days, there was a thing called a letter that you wrote, you put in an envelope, you licked that thing, and you stuck a stamp to it, and you sent it in the mail. Several days later, they got it, right? Ever heard of these things? I'm mean, just curious. But what was that? What was writing a letter to that person that you were dating, or if you leave a note for your current spouse, what is that? It's translating what you know about them, what you observe about them, and you're applying that to your their life. That's what prayer is. Prayer is that kind of a relationship with God. That's what we see that Jesus does when he becomes that host. He's applying that teaching, and he is not just going through a ritual norm of a prayer. It's heartfelt. It's open. This prayer that Christ prayed, again, we don't know what it is, but it moved these men from doubt to dedication. It moved them from confusion to clarity. <laughs> and it moved them from faltering to faith. So first, doubt is not a sign of disease, but it's a direction for a deeper relationship. Second, truth changes our minds. It opens our eyes, fills our hearts. Third, prayer joins truth with everyday life. And then finally, number four, the gospel alone gives grace to the hurting heart. Think about the song that Wendy sang this morning. It's at the cross. The gospel is what gives grace to the hurting heart. These men were confused. They didn't know what to do. And then Jesus showed them from the Old Testament how everything that has happened was prophesied by God. 
when he appears to these, these other disciples in the room, what does he do? He opens the Moses, the books of Moses, the law. He opens the prophets and he opens the Psalms. And he does the same thing. He takes the truth of the gospel that he had to die on a cross for us and he applies that to their life. It's the gospel alone that can, can restore a hurting heart. So when you're in difficulty, when you're struggling, when loss hits, the answers are here. It's in that relationship. You know, you go back and look at the, the phrasing where uh, it says that the men's eyes were open and they knew him. Same Greek word as you see in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus, in, in doing the Sermon on the Mount, says, by their fruits you shall what? Know them. Recognize them. Spot them. Pick them out of a crowd. When we are struggling, Jesus is right there with us. We may not be able to see him, but we can know him. And that is something that we have to cling to every single day. When you're on the road after loss, you may be hurting, but there's hope. You may be struggling, but there is a Savior. And all you have to do is turn to what he has provided for us as truth and wisdom through his word. And the calm that we seek, he will provide. You know, when, um, when I swapped some emails with, with this author um, and let him know how much his, his book meant to me, you know, he, he opened up with a couple of things um, you know, about, about his own loss of his mother. And he, he said, you know, as a historian, <laughs> I am so apt to look to the past, to try and understand the past so that we can be able to, you know, help right the ship of the future. He said, but in these moments of hurting, looking to the past is a great way to remember all that God has done for us. But the greatest thing that we can do as Christians is look to the future because we know who holds it. Mark Howard, the pastor at Kennebec Baptist Church in Andrew, where we came from, had a statement that somehow, and Aaron can attest to this, somehow in every message he preached, this statement made its way in. That when I had him sign my Bible on the last Sunday there, he wrote it in my Bible. And the statement was, as long as you've got Jesus, there's a better day. That is what Jesus taught these men on the road to Emmaus. You looked for ransom, I've already paid it. It's promised here in the scriptures, and we're sure. As long as you've got Jesus, you've got a better day ahead. Let's go ahead and we'll wrap this up in, in a word of prayer. Um, Wendy, if you don't mind, if you will come and just play play one stanza. So let's, let's close and just spend some time with the Lord. Does your heart burn for God's truth like it should? Is your prayer life like it should be? Is your relationship 
as it should be. I can't answer that. Only you can. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it holds. We thank you for the wisdom that is available for us if we will just simply mine for that treasure. Lord, as these individuals on the road to Emmaus were struggling, they were confused, they were on the road after loss. But God, you came alongside them. You were patient. You taught them. You showed them the way. And Lord, as we are going to be facing difficulties in our own lives, we ask that you would do the same for us. Lord, as we spend these next just few minutes of just examining our hearts, Lord, show us areas that we need to improve to enrichen the relationship that we need and that we have with you. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name.